The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, if you ever made a good start at something, um, only then to quickly fall on your face. Has this ever happened to you? Um, anybody ever tried to water ski? Or watch somebody water ski. And after all that hard work of holding on to that rope, you finally get up and you, you start to smile, you're feeling good, and then all of a sudden your feet go out from underneath you, you fall, the ski hits you in the head, you end up in the boat for the rest of the day with a headache, right? Um, what about do-it-yourselfers? I know we got some do-it-yourselfers in the room. Uh, some of you do-it-yourselfers, you got a project, right? And you're all set. I mean, you've watched YouTube, you've been to Lowe's and everything, and, and you, you start out good, you get home, you're all fired up, and then it's not too long, you realize... <laughs> you're in way over your head, right? Or podcasters. Anybody in here ever start a podcast? There's a couple of you. I know there are. I know there are, right? My podcast feed on my phone has a large graveyard of podcasts that started with great intentions and promises of weekly content only to fall short and stall out after one or two episodes, right? Um, there was a good start, but it didn't last long. Now, as we leave the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers and begin into chapters 11 and 12 this morning, we see something very similar. In fact, one way to view the overall structure of the book of Numbers is to see it like this, where the first 10 chapters start out pretty good in a seemingly good and healthy spiritual state. One of the phrases that we've seen on repeat in chapters 1 through 10 is the the, the people of the Lord did all that the Lord commanded. They made a good start. But beginning in chapter 11, there is a noticeable descent, a downward spiral. And what we'll see as we keep marching through the book of Numbers is that essentially the book of Numbers is a tale of two generations. The first generation, the one we've been looking at and will continue to look at today, it's the generation that was saved from slavery in Egypt, led out by Moses, given the Ten Commandments, and now is headed for the promised land. However, and this is what's represented in that downward spiral here, what we see in chapters 11 through 25 are these people rebelling and perishing in the wilderness. Only two of them are going to end up entering into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. Then, picking up in chapter 26 with the new census, yes, there's another census week coming, just so you're ready for that. It's a new generation, the next generation, who largely believes and lives and makes their way into the promised land. Well, today, we're in chapters 11 and 12. We're just beginning that downward spiral. They made a good start. But man, they fall quickly on their face. Specifically this morning, we're going to see their declining spiritual state through their complaining. Complaining. Now listen, these chapters are are loaded. There's at least an eight-week sermon series hiding in here, all right? But what I want us to do is is sort of a, a sweeping view because the whole two chapters are about this theme of complaining. And and what I want to do before we do anything else is just take some time, walk through the text. Make sure we got a good grasp on the whole text. I'll explain some things, draw your attention to certain things, and then we'll work to apply this to our lives. Do you think that'd be helpful? <laughs> Any complainers in here? You know, I didn't ask if you, if you knew one. I asked if you are one, all right? And we all are to certain degrees. And listen, God, in his kindness, wants to address our propensity towards complaining here this morning. You're going to need a Bible open in front of you. If you don't have one, try to grab one of those black pew Bibles maybe in front of you or look off someone else. 
You'll find uh, Numbers 11 beginning on page 119 in those pew Bibles. I'm not going to read all this so much as kind of summarize it, but I'd love for you to keep your eyes in the text, maybe follow along in your copy of God's Word as we work through it. Now look, in the first three verses, what Andrew just read, what we see is that the people complain and Moses intercedes. See that there in verse 1? The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And so we have the people complain. What do they complain about? Well, their misfortunes. If you have another translation, it might say adversity or hardship. They're complaining about their troubles. And notice they're complaining to one another. There's no indication that they're bringing it to God in prayer. But even though they don't bring it to God, oh, he hears it. He hears their complaining, and his anger, we're told, is kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of camp. Look, this is God's judgment upon their complaining. Verse 2, the people cry out to Moses. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. The fire died down, and they named the place Tabira, which means burning. And the second major section then spans the rest of the chapter. Verses 11 through 35. And we could summarize this as the, the people and Moses complain. Now their complaints are different, but they both complain. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. It starts by telling us about the, the rabble that was among them. The, the rabble rousers, right? Now rabble was a mixed multitude of all nationalities who came with God's people up out of Egypt. They're non-Israelites who are traveling along with the Israelites even though they haven't fully assimilated into or taken on the values or the standards of the Israelites. They start to complain, verse 4 says. They had a strong craving. The, The NASB translates it as greedy cravings. And look what happens in the second half of verse 4. Their complaining spreads. Do you see that? And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, the meat. Oh, remember back in Egypt, all the, the fish dinners and the, and the giant salads. Oh, it was great. But now, all we have is manna, manna, manna. <laughs> manna again. That's what they're saying. That's what they're, and don't miss the spread. This time, the complaining began with the rabble. But it was contagious, wasn't it? Complaining is like a communicable disease. <laughs> it gets transmitted by close contact with another complainer. It can be. And it can spread from one friend to another, from one family member to another, through a whole family, through a whole church. Verse 10, we're told Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And so in verses 4 through 10, the people complain, all of them this time. It starts with the rabble, spreads to everyone else. They're complaining about the manna. Verses 7 through 9 then tell us about the manna, this reminder of, of, that it's God's good provision for them in the wilderness. In verse 10, just like we saw earlier, Moses hears. God hears. That's implicit this time, but he must be because, again, it leads to his anger. And verse 10 ends by telling us that Moses was also displeased, but notice he doesn't intercede this time. Moses is not perfect in his intercession. Instead, in verses 11 through 15, Moses complains. Now, to Moses' credit, he brings his complaint to the Lord. That's important. 
The people just complained amongst themselves. Moses at least brings it to God. However, if you read closely through verses 11 through 15, man, it is all about Moses. One commentator I read said that in the original Hebrew, Moses refers to himself no less than 20 times in these five verses. And so Moses brings his complaint to the Lord, but he, he stops short of trusting the Lord. In fact, he's overwhelmed, he's discouraged, and he is ready to give up. Verse 11, Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive of this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I going to get meat for all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you're going to treat me like this, God, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight. And I may not see my wretchedness. Now listen, parents in the room, you know what this sounds like to God. You know. You know when your kids get to that sassy age, right, and you ask them to do the dishes, and they're like, why don't you do them yourself? You're not doing anything. And you're like, whoa, whoa, right? That's kind of what this sounds like. Moses is a little sassy to the father here, which makes what we read next so incredible. Because what we read next in verses 16 and 17 is God's merciful response to Moses. And it is merciful. God agrees to send help to Moses, 70 other men. In fact, that's a lot of help. God is going to take some of the spirit that is on Moses and place it on them. And and they'll, verse 17, bear the burden of the people with you so you may not bear it alone. That's a very merciful response to a pretty sassy and complaining Moses. But God is not just a God of mercy. He's also a God of justice, of judgment even. And verses 18 through 20 record God's judgment response against the complaining people. You want meat? I'll send you meat. That's what God says, not just for a day or two or five or 10 or 20, but for a whole month until it comes out your nose. It's always made me think of, I, I don't know where this story comes from. I don't know if it's a movie or, or what, but you know like the, the tale of the dad who catches his, his teenage son smoking a cigarette and then he makes him smoke the whole pack until he pukes just to teach him a lesson. Like th- this, this passage has always kind of reminded me of that or also Romans 1 where God gives the people over to their sinful desires. This is God's judgment response to the people. We're told in verse 20, it's because they have rejected the Lord. We'll come back to that. In verses 21 and 22, then we have more complaining from Moses in the form of doubt and self-reliance. He pridefully thinks somehow this can be up to him to provide all this meat that God has just promised to bring. In verse 23, there's this short but striking rebuke from God to Moses. Look at this, 1123. And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? That's God's way of asking Moses, hey, is my power too small? Um, Is my arm too weak? Do, Do you really think that I'm unable? Do you really think I can't do what I just said I'm gonna do? Stand back and watch. In the next paragraph, we see God's merciful response to Moses enacted. 
Spirit comes and rests on the 70 elders and they prophesy likely an indication of this stamp of credibility upon them. And then after this, in verses 26 through 30, there's a bit of a redemptive moment for Moses in the story. Two men who were not gathered with the other 70, just hanging out in the camp, Eldad and Medad, the Spirit came and rested on them as well and they prophesied. And Joshua, Moses' young assistant, he's concerned about this. Evidently, he was concerned that if the Spirit could just descend on anyone, anywhere, this might in some way compromise Moses' leadership. And yet Moses doesn't seem to be concerned about this at all for himself. In fact, Moses rebukes Joshua, telling him, don't be jealous for my sake. This is all about God. Moses, we see, is more interested in God's glory than he was his own. It's a redemptive moment for the sassy, self-reliant, you know, doubting and complaining Moses that we just saw. It would seem perhaps that he heard and heeded God's rebuke of him back in verse 23, that he did stand back and watched and perhaps was humbled and glorified the Lord. The chapter ends then with God's judgment response to the people enacted, verses 31 to the end. He brings the quail, an awful lot of it, all right? Two cubits deep, we're told that's three feet, okay? So there, surrounding the camp, a journey's, um, a, a, a journey's way in every direction, right? They are literally waist deep in quail, they gather it up all day, all night. Even the people who gather the least amount gather 10 homers. I'd never heard of a homer before. I had to look this one up, right? A homer is about six bushels, so 10 homers, 60 bushels, math majors, okay, which is the equivalent to like 480 dry gallons of quail. It's a lot of quail. Even if you like quail, that's a lot of quail. All right, before they can even swallow, the anger of the Lord is kindled, verse 23. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. This, of course, also proves that God's hand was not shortened. Okay? Their lack was not because of his inability. If it was, he could have just brought judgment. Could have just brought the plague. Instead, he demonstrates his power, provides far more abundantly than anything they could have ever asked or thought of. But in his judgment of their complaining, he strikes them down before they can swallow Verse 34 then ends telling us that they named the place Kibroth Hatahepha because they were, that, that's where they buried the people who had the craving, or as the NASB translates, there they buried the people who had been greedy. Kibroth Hatahepha means graves of craving or graves of greediness. This then brings us to chapter 12 where we find another kind of complaint. Another kind of complaining, this time by two of the top leaders in all of Israel, Miriam and Aaron. And their complaint is against the top leader in Israel, Moses. It's another kind of greed, a craving for power, or we might say importance. It starts with them speaking against Moses because of his wife, chapter 12, verse 1. They don't like Moses' wife, which is their sister-in-law, if you know your Bible. Right, because Moses and Aaron and Miriam, they're brothers and sisters, right? Miriam's a prophetess, a leader in her own right. She led the women in worship after crossing the Red Sea. Aaron, of course, is the high priest. This is the top family in Israel. And here we see complaining, hitting the uppermost ranks of leadership. Like it's even infiltrating in and creating a divide amongst Moses and his siblings. Again, it starts with them speaking against Moses because of his wife. We're not sure, um, we're not certain if this Cushite woman is the same wife that we're told of back in Exodus 2, named Zipporah, 
or if Zipporah had died by now and this is a second wife. Regardless, what seems to be at issue here is her influence with Moses. They don't like it. Or perhaps, perhaps they're upset about God's spirit coming down on the 70 elders in the previous chapter and not on them. And they're taking it out on Moses' wife. Hey, sometimes upset and complaining people just need somebody to be mad at. Now, Miriam is named first, which would seem to indicate that she was the chief instigator in all of this. But notice that the focus quickly shifts off of Moses' wife in verse 2, perhaps a further indication that that wasn't actually the main issue to begin with. And what we read of uh, in, in verse 2, then, is Miriam and Aaron's complaint. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Hadn't he spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. This is Miriam and Aaron essentially saying, who does Moses think he is? Ironically, he's the one just a chapter ago who prayed to God and turned away his burning fire so it didn't destroy the whole camp. That's who he is. <laughs> or maybe they've seen Moses at his, at his lowest. Maybe they saw him in the overwhelmed and discouraged state even that we just read about. Family often sees us at our worst. But regardless, Moses, we know, was called by God, put in place by God. He is God's chosen servant. If you go back to Exodus 3 and 4, he was even a reluctant servant. Like, Moses is not power hungry. He he is not a power grabber on a power high. In fact, verse 3 tells us he was very meek, humble, more humble than all the people on the face of the earth. He is God's chosen and appointed leader of God's chosen people. Well, just like in the earlier incidents, God hears their their complaining about Moses, and suddenly, we're told in verse 4, that word should get your attention. Suddenly, God calls the three of them to the tent of meeting. He affirms Moses as his chosen one, more special than the others. He asks in rebuke, why were you not afraid to speak against him? We're told God's anger was kindled, and then he departed in chapter 12, verse 9. And what we're expected to read right next is is a body count. Instead, when the dust settled, Miriam was leprous. She was punished. Why wasn't Aaron? You ever wondered that? It says they both grumbled against Moses. The Lord's anger is kindled. Miriam gets punished. Why isn't Aaron? Short answer, I don't know. I don't know. No one seems to know for certain, actually. Perhaps it's because she was the chief instigator, as we said earlier, her name being mentioned first. Or perhaps it's to highlight Miriam and Aaron's need for Moses' unique role as a mediator. You know, when you think about it, it's interesting, if not ironic, that Aaron, the high priest, doesn't turn around and offer a prayer of sacrifice for Miriam. He can't. He himself is sinful. Guilty of the exact same sin as Miriam here. Listen to how theologian Ligon Duncan postulates what's going on. And this is just, this is just one, one, one postulation, right? Aaron now very clearly needs a mediator. Though his job in a certain sense as the high priest is to mediate for Israel in the sacrificial ceremonies that are designed to illustrate the way that God freely forgives the sins of his people through the shedding of blood, now Aaron is the guilty party. Right alongside with Miriam. 
And Miriam being given the physical penalty of leprosy and Aaron being unable to intercede for her because he himself is the sinful accomplice in the very same thing which brought about her physical judgment, we see illustrated why Moses is necessary as the mediator. In, in other words, the necessity of a mediator is being highlighted here. And so Aaron turns to Moses in verse 11 and he pleads with him to intercede for them. In verse 13, Moses cries out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. It's his sister. Presumably God does. Presumably the leprosy is removed. But God still put her out of the camp for seven days to suffer the shame for her sin. They made a good start, didn't they? Chapters 1 through 10. But boy, did they fall on their face quick in chapters 11 through 12. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of complaining right there. And before we jump into making an application to ourselves, I want to I show you quickly why we should. Um, I, want, I want you to turn your Bibles to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's going to be on page 957 in those Black Pew Bibles. Um, if you get to the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all right, then Acts, then Romans, then Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Page 957. I've been patiently waiting for three weeks to take us here, okay, because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is really a key commentary on the book of Numbers. It's an important control for us on how we read the book of Numbers. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. We met the cloud last week. And all passed through the sea. Okay, that's the exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Okay, talking about manna here. And all drank the same spiritual drink. This is interesting. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. We'll probably come back to that later in this series. All right. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's your key that we're talking about this information here back in Numbers, this time back in Numbers. Now these, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire, what's the word? Evil as they did. Not to be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf incident back in Exodus 32. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Whoa, that's Numbers 25. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. I hate snakes. We're going to learn about that in Numbers 21. Nor, verse 10, grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to our passage today in Numbers 11. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, Numbers was written down for us. Right? What happened in Numbers serves as a negative example for us, designed to keep us from doing the wrong things that they did. And it's been written down for our instruction. In other words, we are to read and understand the book of Numbers and learn from and apply it to our lives. That's not always easy to do. There's a lot going on in the book of Numbers, a lot to keep track of and understand, but the main thing going on in chapters 11 and 12 is not hard to understand. It's all about complaining. And we can learn and apply it to ourselves as we think about, number one, the sin of complaining, number two, the temptation to complain, number three, the roots of complaining, 
And number four, the remedy of complaining. First, the sin of complaining. That's right. Complaining's a sin. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Paul said these things and numbers took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then what does he name? Idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling, complaining. Or think of Philippians 2, verse 14, where we as Christians are commanded to do all things without grumbling and disputing, without complaining. Back in Numbers, we know the complaining is sinful because it brings about God's judgment. With a fire at the edge of the camp in the first incident, the quail and the plague in the second, Miriam's leprosy in the third, complaining is a sin. Now hold on, some of you are thinking, I thought it was okay to complain to God. I've been doing a lot of that, you know? Like, is this, am I wrong? Is this bad? Should I not be doing that? Listen, you're right. It's okay to complain to God, but we actually have a different name for that. It's called lament. And if you've heard us talk about Lent before, uh, I'm sorry, lament before around here at Two Pillars, um, we've pointed out the four key components to a lament. Turning to God, complaining to God, asking God for whatever we want, whatever we need, Knowing that as we grow in Christian maturity, this asking is increasingly conditioned by who God is. And so we're asking increasingly, we're getting better at this, asking God to act in a manner consistent with his character, consistent with his revealed will and his word. But then lastly, trusting God. So turning to God, complaining to God, asking God to act in accordance with his character and his revealed will, and trusting God. Surrendering to him in the end. It's humbly saying, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. How many of these components do we see in the complaining going on in Numbers 11 through 12? I mean, none, really. I mean, some with Moses, he does turn to God and complain to God in that second incident. But he seems to come up short with asking God to work in accordance with his character or in accordance with what he's already promised. And he fails to trust. In fact, most of the complaining going on in Numbers doesn't contain turning to God at all. You see, there's a massive biblical and spiritual difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. The first is welcomed. It's even encouraged in Scripture. I think of Psalm 142 and David's example. I pour out my my complaint before the Lord. I tell him my trouble before him. That's encouraged. The second, complaining about God, whether externally or internally, to yourself or to others, right? Just a general spirit and state of grumbling and complaining is sin. Let's sharpen this definition a little bit, all right? Because it's not, complaining is not, you know, you discussing injustices in the world. That's not complaining. Um, It's not you discussing problems and difficult things that are going on in in your life. Complaint, sinful complaining, let's say, is my heart saying, remember out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So complaining is your heart, sinful complaining is your heart saying, God is not good. He has not given me what I need. It's focusing on what you don't have instead of all that he's provided for you. It's, it's emphasizing your attention on what he hasn't done for you instead of all that he has done for you. It's a refusal to be satisfied with, to borrow a term from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, your portion. Your God-prescribed, God-allotted circumstances 
and station in life. <laughs> and it manifests in a lot of ways. Grumbling to yourself, a downcast spirit about you, literally complaining to, to others, frustration, anger, sometimes anger you don't even understand, jealousy, a negative Nancy attitude, hmm? a Debbie Downer persona. It can even manifest or create or cause depression, hopelessness, and despair. Again, sinful complaining is the heart saying, God is not good. He's not giving me what I need. And listen, I love what Paul says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10 because we're all susceptible to this. We didn't read it, but this is what he says. Let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. There's a lot of ways, a lot of things that can tempt us to complain. I see at least seven things in the text that can tempt us to complain. The first, misfortunes. Verse 1, again, it's a word that means hardships, adversity, trouble, suffering would fall under here, things happening to you, an illness, perhaps chronic, unique and difficult circumstances, or maybe an illness with a child or a close loved one, a, f- a financial hardship that comes your way, trauma from your past that you're just now starting to you know, scratch the surface on, figure out how to deal with. In summary, it's something that comes into your life from outside of your life, outside your control of life that you really don't want in your life. And when something, anything like this comes up in your life, there's a strong temptation to grumble, to complain. A second temptation from the text is monotony. Manna again, all right? They were tired of manna, tired of the same old, same old. And we can get that way too. When life feels boring, which is often just a derogatory word for ordinary, which is normal, right? We can be tempted to complain. Closely related in the text, though not always in our experience, a third temptation to complain comes from a distorted vision of the past. Oh, how great we had it in Egypt. No, you didn't. You were slaves. <laughs> You were forced to making bricks without straw by a harsh, a harsh taskmaster. But their present circumstances, their present misfortunes even, have caused them to look back with the distorted vision of the past. It's easy, isn't it, to look back on a season of your life? College, no kids, whatever, you know. Remembering only the good parts, which in comparison to your current season of life and its bad parts... Look distortingly good. And the temptation comes to complain, to grumble. A fourth temptation is a perceived lack. God's people in numbers, counting, recounting the good old days back in Egypt, you know, all they had to eat back there articulated a perceived lack in the present, even though God is providing all they truly need right here, right now. But despite God's provision, they perceive lack and complain. The most obvious temptation from the text is the greedy cravings. Our, our greedy cravings, greedy cravings, our inordinate desires are always a temptation for us. And if left unfulfilled, they can become a temptation to complain. Think of a greedy craving of yours, a desire, perhaps for a good thing, 
that becomes an over-desire and an obsessive desire for sex, for money, for nice things, a nice vacation, control, a break, whatever it is. When it goes unfulfilled, there's a temptation to complain. The sixth temptation to complain comes from Moses complaining about heavy burdens. Why is, he said, heavy burdens in your life can, can, can very easily create a temptation to complain, right? He, he says here, why is no one else having to go through this, huh? Have you ever felt that way in your life? Why is no one else having to deal with the junk that I have to deal with? This seems unfair. Why is it only me? Why does my load have to be so heavy? I can remember thinking, okay, complaining, actually, um, during the powder keg of 2020. Uh, boy, I remember thinking, boy, it'd be nice to not be in ministry right now. You know, the lockdown. I'm an introvert. I'm pretty comfortable with lockdown. Like, I, I, can, I can spend a lot of time by myself before I get lonely, and then even when I do, I kind of like it. Right? And so just being, you know, locked down, working from home, spend time with my family, baking some sourdough, you know? With really only like... What, I got four other people maybe to worry about? Instead of a whole church, you know, making lots of decisions, every single one of which, by the way, upset somebody, right? Some of you are like, yeah, well, I was mad about that. Heavy burdens can easily create a temptation to complain. And then lastly, in the incident with Miriam and Aaron, we see the hunger for importance as a temptation to complain, feeling overlooked, Maybe undervalued, wanting to be considered more special, wanting to be faded, wanting to feel important. Listen, I don't know which of these stands out to you the most. There are certainly other temptations to complain. These are just seven that I see in the text. But ask yourself, when am I most tempted to complain? Which is another way of asking, when am I most tempted to sin in this way? To commit the sin of complaining. Now look, it's not terribly difficult to spot our complaining. We usually know when we're doing it, you know? Uh, it's like, well, I kind of feel like a jerk today. I don't know what's going on here. We, we can usually spot our own complaining. Other people can spot it pretty quickly in us. What's harder is to identify the temptation bringing it about, but what's even one step harder than that is identifying the root of our complaining. Or we might say identifying the the sin beneath the sin of our complaining. And for the temptation of misfortunes, the the root very well may be unbelief. Unbelief that God is good. Unbelief that he's in control. It's unbelief at the root that looks at our misfortunes and complains rather than seeing the hardships that God brings into our lives as personalized, his personalized sanctification program, which has been carefully designed doled out to me by him, the one who works all things together for my good. With monotony, underneath our complaining that comes about from monotony is likely a refusal to be satisfied with God's provision in our life. God had given the people exactly what they needed, manna, but they were unsatisfied with God's provision. With a distorted vision of the past, perhaps his discontentedness with the providence of God and an inability to rest in the presence of God. 
an inability or unwillingness to see how God is working in the here and now for your good. I mean, this one gets significant attention in the text. Back when God is giving his judgment response to the people for their grumbling in chapter 11, when he says, I'll I'll give you so much meat to eat, it'll come out of your nose. He adds this rationale in verse 20. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why do we come out of Egypt? Are you starting to see the severity of the sin of complaining? God says, in your complaining, in your distorted vision of the past, you've actually rejected me in the present. You've rejected me even though I am present with you. I'm among you, he says. When tempted by unperceived lack... Again, it's a failure to rest in God's good provision now. He knows exactly what you truly need. He never fails to provide all we need pertaining to life and godliness. With greedy cravings, I hope it's plain to see the root is a greedy heart, a heart that's unsatisfied in Him. With heavy burdens, the root might be doubt. Doubting God's power, doubting his ability. It may be also a God complex that says, if it's got to be, it's up to me. It's interesting to look at Moses' complaint to God and see just how far off he was. Have you noticed in verse 12, Moses complains, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land you swore to give their fathers? I mean, you can almost hear God say, can't you? No. Uh, in fact, you better check your birth certificate there, bro, because last time I read it, it said Moses and not Yahweh. Right? I conceived them, Moses. They are my children. And if you've got delivered God's people out of Egypt on your resume, we need to talk. I'm the one who bore you on eagle's wings and brought you up out. I'm the one who carries you in my bosom, nursing you like a mother all the way to the promised land. See, when you and I are tempted to complain over the heavy burdens in our life or in ministry, very often at the root of that complaining is a failure to believe that God is God and we are not. And then lastly, with complaining that comes from a hunger for importance, so often the root is envy. Perhaps like with Miriam and Aaron, Or failure to be satisfied with the gifts and station that God has given you and others. Perhaps a rebellious anti-authoritarianism that refuses to live in submission to anyone God may place over you. Or simply a failure to lean, lean deeply into your identity as a beloved child of God. Loved by God apart from anything you ever do for God. And so when you catch yourself complaining, or someone else does, and in love points it out to you, can we do that with each other, by the way? Can we strive for holiness in this way, by the way? When you catch yourself complaining, or someone else does and lovingly points it out to you, dig down deep to the root. Ask yourself, ask God, what is under this? What's going on deep down? And when you find it, 
when he reveals that to you, whether it's unbelief or greed or envy or a God complex or doubt, ask God to bring about genuine Holy Spirit conviction and godly sorrow in your life over this sin. And then, run to the remedy. Run to the remedy. You see, Numbers 11 and 12 don't just identify the sin of complaining and the temptations to complain and cause us to reflect upon the roots of our complaining. These chapters also point us forward to the remedy for complaining. What's the remedy? Well, from the text, it involves mercy and intercession. When you step back and look at these two chapters, God's mercy is all over them. And God's mercy, let's just remember, God's mercy is when we don't get what we deserve in the punitive sense. That's mercy. In the first incident, in the beginning of chapter 11, the people complained, God's anger was kindled, and he only brings fire on the outlying parts of the camp. He very easily, quite deservingly, could have brought fire all throughout the camp. They didn't get what they deserved. That's God's mercy. In the second incident, the people complained, and Moses complains too. God's anger blazed hotly, Numbers 11.10 tells us, and yet God brings judgment upon those with the greedy cravings, but enacts a merciful response upon Moses. Moses didn't get what he deserved. With Miriam and Aaron, they complain against God's chosen servant. His anger is kindled again, but suddenly he calls them together, he rebukes Miriam and Aaron, then departs, and we're expecting the body bags. Instead, Miriam gets leprosy, is eventually healed and welcomed back amongst the people. Aaron's not punished at all. They both should have been struck dead. And yet, they didn't get what they deserved. A key component to the remedy for complaining is the mercy of God. I mean, it's only by the mercy of God that they've made it this far to begin with. And it's only by the mercy of God that you and I have made it this far to begin with. Mercy is a key component of our remedy for complaining too. As Christians, God's mercy comes to you through the cross. It's because of the cross that you don't get what you deserve. God's judgment due to your sin of complaining. You see, your complaining, whether the root is unbelief or greed or doubt or discontent, deserves nothing less than the punishment of death. The wages of sin is death. Complaining is no small matter. And yet, on the cross, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus took on the wrath that you deserve so that you would not get what you deserve. And on this side of the cross, as you reflect upon the mercy of the cross, when you reflect upon what you deserve versus what you got, what you deserve, what you have, and will yet get, reflecting on and trusting in the mercy of God shown to you through Jesus, attacks the roots of complaining. He has been so good to you. Count the ways. And if you're having trouble, start at the cross. Start at the cross. And then intercession. Listen, the the other key component to the remedy for complaining that we see in this text is intercession. In the first incident, when the people complained, Moses interceded, the fire died down. In the second incident, when everyone was complaining, notably, Moses did not intercede. He complained, 
he failed to intercede for the people and God's judgment response came upon them, striking them down with a very great plague. And then Miriam and Aaron, when Miriam was struck with leprosy and took on the appearance of a stillborn child and Aaron couldn't help, Moses could, he interceded. And her sentence was reduced from death to seven days of banishment. Listen, a key component to the remedy of complaining is intercession. And it's a key component to our remedy as well. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus didn't just die in our place for our sins, taking on the punishment we deserve and showing us mercy, though he did all that. But also, Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, from where Hebrews 7.25 tells us he always lives to make intercession for us. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, he is interceding for you right now. Right now. Here's why that's important. Here's why that is so important. God never tells you in the Bible to squash your pain, shut up about your feelings, suck it up already and stop your complaining. Never says that. No, in all your unbelief, in all your refusal to be satisfied, your discontentedness, your inability to rest in his provision and his presence, in your greed, in your envy, in your doubt, in your failure to let God be God, in your struggle for importance and value, you get to bring it all to him. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are heavy, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Listen, you get to bring it all to Jesus. You get to turn to him. This is where complaining and faith first diverge. You must turn to Jesus. Not to your friend, not to your spouse, not into internal self-focused self-talk, complaint. Bring it to Jesus. Lay out your complaint to Jesus in all its ugliness. You can tell him exactly what you feel, exactly what's going on in your heart and your head. Guess what? He knows it already anyway. You don't have to pretty it up with religious perfume. You can bring it to him. He's able to save to the uttermost. So you don't have to be afraid that your complaint is too hideous. And then ask. Turn to Jesus, complain it out to Jesus, then ask. Ask God to intervene. Ask God for what you want, for what you need. Remembering his mercy that he's already shown you, but asking him to act in accordance with his character, in accordance with his revealed will. But then trust. You lay it all out before him and trust. Trust that he'll help you in your unbelief. Trust that he really has provided everything that you need for life and godliness. It's a surrendered trust that battles discontentment with faith. Trust even when you don't understand. Trust that he's the Lord, that he loves you, that he's with you, that he's never going to leave you or forsake you, that he will uphold you and strengthen you, that he has begun a good work in you. He's going to see it through to completion. And this wilderness is not your home. And one day, our risen and ascended and interceding Jesus will return to take you to the eternal promised land of heaven where he's going to wipe away every reason 
to ever complain again. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that these things we've read about in Numbers happened as an example. Thank you for having them written down for our instruction. And let any of us who thinks that we stand take heed lest we fall. And also, to remember that no temptation has overtaken us that is not common to all. Most importantly, God, help us remember and believe that you are faithful and you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, you also provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. Let us now with confidence draw near to the throne of Jesus' grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We pray in his merciful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.